0: Listeners, this is the sixth episode of Kid You Not Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for downloading our podcast. It's great that so many of you want to know more about the hidden side of children's literature. I'm with Lauren Davis.
0: And I'm with Clementine Bove. And together we're going to discuss a pretty
1: controversial theme in any kind of literature but perhaps even more so in children's literature. And that is religion. And the reason why we've chosen it is that it's pretty much in the news. Let's start today's episode, as usual, with a bit of reading from a very recent teenager novel.
0: In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, only it wasn't as simple as that. The preferred candidate for God withdrew at the last minute, saying he wanted to spend more time with his family though privately everyone suspected he was having second thoughts. You couldn't really blame him. Earth was badly positioned, miles off the beaten track, in a lonely and somewhat run-down part of the universe. At a time of high employment, not many top-level candidates were willing to take on a tiny, unproven planet, not to mention the whole creation rigmarole, which, when done properly, could be a real headache. The hours ticked by. With a deadline upon them, the committee required a decision. But the administrator was going through a messy divorce and the team that should have been sorting out Earth's management was busy with other projects. The final day of the tender arrived with no one to take the position. Tempers frayed, minds wandered, and at last one of the board members offered the job as part of a bet on a not very good game of poker. The player who won promptly turned it over to her feckless teenage son, Bob. Bob's credentials, non-existent, did not impress. But the general sense of exhaustion and indifference was such that no one could really be bothered to argue. And anyway, he might turn out to have great potential. Stranger things had happened.
1: And this is an extract from There Is No Dog by Meg Rosoff, which came out very recently, earlier this year, and caused a bit of a controversy.
0: Yeah, schools didn't really like it, did they? Or rather, one particular school.
1: Yeah, didn't want to invite Megrosov to speak because uh, their school, because they said that it was a blasphemous book. Well, so, blasphemous means that it's basically an offence to uh, the idea of God. And this episode is on religion, so I guess we're gonna have to be quite clear with the terms God, religion, faith, belief, etc. But in that case, I think it was a figure of God who was directly attacked. Because what happens in "There Is No Dog" is that a young teacher teenage boy is actually god and has created the earth and is dealing with it very badly which explains much of the horrible things that are happening on earth at the moment
0: yeah well isn't it an attempt to reconcile the highs and lows that you can have in existence because one of the most common questions asked is how can god if he's you know, all oh, merciful, allow such suffering on earth, and the idea of a hormonal teenage boy who on the one hand can experience ecstasy, and on the other hand, the absolute pits of teenage angst, it's an interesting approach.
1: Yeah, and it's, and I think you can tell in this book, it's a very, it's a concept book. It's one of these books that has one important premise, and then, you know, she asks what if God was a teenage boy, as is written on the cover, and she goes on and on talking about it. So you describe it as a concept book, Clem.
0: Is this one of those books where the concept or the hook is more important than the story and completely overshadows it?
1: Well, to an extent, but I think I think the premise is so important and sort of defines everything about the book, from the language used, which is you know pseudo biblical, sort of a a parody of biblical language, to the behaviour of the people who are praying, to um, the behaviour of God, who is very much represented as a sort of mix of the the Almighty Christian God and the ancient, perhaps mythological gods. So. You know, this premise infiltrates every level of the book. I think what this book succeeds in doing is actually asking a lot of questions about teenage belief, teenage love, and the place of spirituality in this. It succeeds in showing how complex and how sometimes desensitized or despiritualized teenage years can be for, for a teenager. And the concept allows us to explore not only the idea of God, but also teenage through that.
0: So I haven't read the book is it blasphemous do you
1: think? I think okay let's get straight to start with I'm an atheist agnostic let's say and um, Lauren you're a Christian Mm -hmm. so blasphemy to me does not exist because obviously I think blasphemy can only exist from the point of view of someone who believes but if I understand it well blasphemy is saying that God doesn't exist and that as a result religious people are somehow deluded in in their belief, is that is that right?
0: I suppose it's a really difficult word to define, isn't it?
1: Because it depends where you come from.
0: Yeah, because to me, blasphemy isn't saying that God doesn't exist. It would be something
1: insulting God. Is,
0: no, it's something disrespectful. Hmm. Because so, I don't know. Like the premise of that book is not offensive in any way to me. It sounds quite interesting. It's what to me it sounds like a way of exploring faith and belief and as you say the concept of whether there is a god or not whereas i'm sure that more right-wing christians such as the school that she was scheduled to speak at clearly found the concept utterly offensive Mm -hmm. to their faith so i suppose that is a very important point on the turn isn't it that even people from the same religion can have a completely different
1: conceptions on whether something is counted as blasphemous Yeah, exactly. I think that what can appear offensive in it is that it completely desacralizes creation so life is presented as whims of um, a teenager who is completely crazy about sex and has no, is not concerned about his creation at all, but apart from that I think it's a fairly inoffensive book. But I guess the reason why we wanted to to have an episode on religion in children's literature is because it is not an, an inoffensive concept, it's not an inoffensive theme.
0: No, and children's literature has very strong ties to religion. Yes. Because the first examples of children's literature were prayer books for children, or religious tracts, or little stories that encourage children to honour their parents, go to church, pray every day, and st- stories that don't have a religious element sprang out of this tradition.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. So the origins of children's literature were in communicating some form of religious message. And I think we shouldn't forget that the Bible was for a very, 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 very long time. The only thing that children ever read, or they didn't read it, more likely, but that we have read to. So it really is like the cradle of children's literature is in the West is the Christian faith.
0: So it is very interesting to explore the legacy of that nowadays and how, obviously, things are very different.
1: Mm. So so originally, children's publishing was really about publishing religious pamphlets or religious texts for children to develop their faith in God, to develop their belief in God, their fear of God, I think, to a very large extent.
0: And then if we move forward a bit to one of the golden ages of children's literature, where a lot of people's favourite books were published, actually a lot of what people cite as their favourite books are very, very religious. Like what? Little Women is based, well, the characters in it all try and follow the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan a text that children definitely don't read
1: anymore, anymore.
0: Um, Secret Garden there's a lot yes. about religion in the Secret yes. Garden Anne of Green Gables Pollyanna
1: oh These. Pollyanna my favourite <laughs> but yeah well I guess all the Francis Hodgson Burnett books so Little Lord Fauntleroy and um, Secret Garden Little Princess are all animated somewhere by some kind of religious light and, you know, a faith in providence.
0: And I suppose we should emphasise that it's all Christian Yes,
1: light. that's definitely a bias that we have, because we're looking at Western children's literature. Sorry about that, anyone who's <laughs> less interested in Western children's literature. So at the time, it was a norm. But when I was little, and I come from a very atheistic family, I read tonnes of picture books about Noah's Ark, all these religious, these texts from the Bible, really, that were taken from it. So they're not, they haven't completely disappeared, these stories from the Bible, in, the, in publishing.
0: No, I and mean, in fact they crop up in odd places because biblical stories are still well-known. And mm-hmm. if they are less well-known these days than they used to be, they can still be used as an easy shorthand
1: or allegory in. So, for example, we're getting closer to Christmas. It's fairly, you know, it's fairly rational to imagine that we'll have mainstream publishers who would never dream of publishing devotional texts for children getting, you know, the story of Christmas out and, you know, little baby Jesus. Yeah,
0: Easter. There's a lot of Easter
1: storybooks.
0: I think it's because it's easy to sell Christianity or religious things to parents. If if most teenagers, as we've already said, that teenage period is a time in people's lives when it's very stereotypical that you lose your faith or have a crisis or of faith it, yeah. and just aren't particularly interested in it. Mm. Whereas picture books clearly marketed at the parent, the parent has to buy it. And a lot of parents are very keen that their children will learn these things. And I suppose if they are just retellings of Bible stories, they're also really good stories on their own. So even if the parent isn't religious, the nativity story is mm. a very pleasant story.
1: <laughs> but would you say that in a way, these stories and the way you're saying it makes it sound like actually they've been stripped of the faith dimension. They are enjoyed in the way you would enjoy the, the story of Thesis and the Minotaur. So that is to say as mythology or as legends rather than religious texts. Would you say that this sort of you know, it's trickled down to popular culture, but, you know, the element of belief that is the core of religious faith has gone from it?
0: In some ways, because definitely if you think of nativity stories, although God is mentioned the story is, you know, about there's being no room at the inn and the angels coming to see the shepherds mm. and the wise men seeing the baby and and it also depends on why parents buy it for their children because if you think a picture book is a very social experience the child probably won't read it on their own i think this is one of those situations where actually context mm, is matters all.
1: i think it's interesting to interrogate the role of religion in children's literature children's literature is by definition an acculturating medium that is to say that it will introduce into social life and sort of a historical background and cultural context children who you know to start with have no experience of it so it is very strongly as we always say educational and enjoyable so what is the what was the function of religion to start with and and and, you know for a very long time in children's literature it was really to preserve and maintain a certain conception of socio-political order, organization, that is to say children were introduced to texts that beyond belief in God were also presenting ways of living one's life, ways of organizing one's relationships, ways of perceiving different forms of authority that were in, you know, that were in accordance with religious, with Christian principles, but also with the political system that it it supported.
0: Yeah, because something really worth emphasizing about these texts, especially early texts for children, they really emphasize the nature of the ideal child and idea imbue the idea of the child with or the ideal child with this innocence that we know that actually most real children don't have there's a publisher in cambridge called the letterworth press which used to specialize in publishing stories with a strong christian message but some of them that were published in the that late you know 1880s 1890s were very very successful one of the stories this is for a child to read mm-hmm is about a little girl whose parents die and she goes to live with her uncle and her uncle has turned away from God. He's bitter and angry and he swears but through the warmth of this little girl's love he repents of his disloyalty to God and in the end dedicates his life to God once again
1: that's pretty much the story of well of quite a lot of things actually of heidi of little lord faneroy of um what's his, what's it called your favorite book silas manner oh, i love
0: silas Minor. yeah yeah something that i think quite isn't is quite interesting about these examples of early literature and how they are tied up in the ideals of the time is that it subordinates and yet elevates
1: the child. the child. So it's conceptions of childhood as well as conceptions of, this, of of political order. They go hand in hand. With the good child will come the good society.
0: Exactly. And obviously, this is, or then was a deep part of Christianity.
1: Yeah, um, it's interesting to have a look at these titles from the Letterworth Press. Uh, This is one summary from one of their books from their website, Joan's Crusade by Eileen Hemming. Joan and Wendy decide to spend the day spreading the word of God around their neighborhood and realize that one day they would like to become true missionaries. A story with a strong Christian theme from 9 to 10-year-olds. Here we get exactly all these elements. We get the social element of religion, you know, spreading the word of God around their neighborhood, even beyond belief, beyond faith. This is really for the children's book a way of linking people together according to a certain conception of of social life and 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 you know and politics and I
0: would say that that's the sort of thing that is deeply unfashionable Yes. in, definitely. Children, yeah. in
1: mainstream children's publishing okay, today. Okay, yes. So let's talk about religion in, in mainstream publishing today. I would say that the way I see it now, when religion is mentioned, and it is still mentioned quite a lot in modern children's books and teenage books, it is to, mention, it is to talk about religious extremism.
0: Or the human aspect of religion and what humans create it it seems to be stripped from belief in the sense that there are several books they don't have to be about extremism but about um valley rise books are all about the Sikh community but in in Britain but in no way do they explore faith spirituality they explore tradition and the way people Mm. live in a very human way they are not spiritual in the sense that these older books
1: Okay so would you say that what has become unfashionable in publishing is to express devotion to God so instead you're going to focus on the social structures and the uh, sort of sense of belonging that goes with religious faith?
0: Yeah that sounds like a fair assessment.
1: So do you want to talk a bit more about Bally Rye's teenage novels?
0: Well his novels are set in the Sikh community in Leicester on the whole or in the West Midlands and focus on the problems Growing up in a Western country with a deeply religious family whose ideal or whose traditions and ways of life are not Western. So, the two books, the one book that I read as a teenager that had a big effect on me because I didn't really know a lot about other cultures at that stage was Unarranged Marriage, which is all about a boy called Manny, who, his parents arrange a marriage for him but because he's been brought up in Leicester, does not want to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, Valerie's recent book, which is also very good, is called Killing Honour, and is about the problem of honour killing in the Sikh community.
1: So here, this is an example, I would say, of a, of a book which talks about religion to, partly to denounce religious extremism. How is that presented in the book? Is it explained, do we recontextualise this religious extremism?
0: Well, it, it presents the extremism as something that isn't actually part of the faith. It's something separate and malicious and something that has grown from bitterness and something very
1: earthly. And does it let go of, religion, of of religious faith completely?
0: There are very religious characters in it, but they're never the main character or their friends. It's usually the, the character's parents mm-hmm. deeply believe in their faith. Although, for example, in Killing Honour, the main character's mum is deeply, deeply religious in, in that she still believes but the dad has lapsed and yet clings on to the traditions mm. and the social implications of that rather than the faith itself
1: yeah I think that's quite an interesting thing now because we get a very ambiguous portrayal of religion now in children's in children's books and, and teenage books because where religion used to be the norm so religious and religion and everything that goes with it so as, as we said the social political order that goes with it now is sort of scattered in books that talk about religion. So you will have, for example, a strong sense that religion does maintain a kind of sense of belonging, but that sides of it, such as relationships with others, will be corrugated, or that some aspects of it will be perceived as a problem, something that is at odds with modern life. So what used to be a very unified religious sense is now in modern literature for children presenting religion as a social problem, not necessarily in a negative way, but as something that has to be dealt with.
0: I think religion becomes very earthly mm-hmm. in that it, yeah, it is more the social side that is explored rather than the faith.
1: Right. Um, talking about books which maybe are more fashionable in publishing these days because they attack to a certain degree religious faith and, you know, belief in God. So we've talked about There Is No Dog a little bit. Recently, we had quite an interesting paranormal romance novel that we talked about in our last episode on paranormal romance. That's Angel by L.A. Weatherly. And I think that's an opportunity to have a look at all the books now that talk about angels and that talk about demons, because these are, you know, these are Christian supernatural figures. But they're the way they are used in paranormal romance is completely emptied of, of Christian significance would you would you say so or
0: yes definitely the there's a series called Fallen by Lauren Kate which is based around lots of biblical stories but the spiritual element has been completely stripped from him. Even though God exists as a character, he doesn't exist in the way that we would understand God to be when we talk about him now. He is right. just another figure in the story right, yeah. intended to advance the plot, which is very... It sat very oddly with me, but maybe that is because I am a Christian. But coming back to L.A. Reveille's Angel yes. and its connection with religion, it... Depicts angels as something evil and something uh, Mm. uh, beings that literally suck the life out humans. The soul, yeah. Actually, accuses them of being the cause of mental illness.
1: Yes, that's true. I'd forgotten about that. Anyone
0: involved
1: with angels who are very
0: convincing start to develop things like depression and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, The main plot point in Angel is that the angels create. A what is it? The church. Church of Angels. Chur, it is the Church of Angels, um, which is an organised religion intended to help these angels regularly feed off willing humans. And a
1: barely disguised reference to evangelical Christianity in the U.S. I think we can say, because <laughs> it uses it uses exactly the ways that Christian evangelists use, so televangelical meetings, huge huge churches that function almost you know on their own with you know community. Communities that work and pray in the same place. And the idea is to always gather more, more and more and more people because as as it happens in the books, the angels need them to feed on their souls. And I think it's, it's a really interesting idea that she had there. I think it's probably her best idea in the whole series, This Church of Angels, because it really is a very strong attack against Christ, uh, evangelical Christians in the US. And the way it's done is very clever, because she takes all of the characteristics of someone who is in a sect and explains it supernaturally as well. But it's definitely
0: a ta- an attack on the social aspect yes. of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. It's really worth emphasising. At no point do you get the impression that she is attacking the
1: belief in a higher power. So now it's more religious structures that are attacked, religious figures, people who are speaking with a degree of authority on belief who are attacked rather than, I mean I think especially in children's literature there is still some kind of um, reluctance to really tackle the themes of faith and belief. It's it's like, as we said in our episode of death, we talk a lot about mourning, but very little about death. In religion, that's the same. You talk a lot about religious authorities, but very little about faith, God, and all the you know, big, big, big questions like that.
0: Moving on from Ella Weberly and her Church of Angels, a number of dystopian novels published recently, there seem to have been quite a wave of them, failed to mention religion at all. Hunger Games doesn't contain a religious element, Lauren Oliver's delirium. Yeah. It it could be that this, I don't know if it's enough to call it a trend, but the latest wave of dystopian novels maybe now envision a future without religion.
1: Yeah, definitely. Going back to books that tackle religion as problematic, we have, perhaps understandably, Salman Rushdie. (laughs) Perhaps. So his first children's book, uh, Harun and the Sea of Stories, um, has, you know, barely disguised references to religious extremism in political power and supplants religious belief and faith with a very, very strong faith and hope in narrative. So let's say imagination has replaced these old stories.
0: Which brings us nicely on to my biggest obsession, doesn't it, Clementine? Pullman? Yes, this is all about the his dark materials are all about the power of stories. That's true. And how stories not only shape your existence, but in Pullman they are used as your passage to freedom after
1: death. Yes. At the origin of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, he was talking to his editor and he said that he basically hated The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis.
0: Which I agree with. <laughs>
1: Which um, is a sort of rewriting of the Bible in many ways, and obviously supports Christian traditional values very, very strongly. And um, Pullman saw it as um, propagandist, and etc. And he said to his editor, "I want to rewrite Paradise Lost by John Milton, but in a way that would help say to child readers that they are allowed to question conceptions of religious authority." And that's how his Dark Materials was created
0: and it's very these books are so interesting in regard to religion a huge proportion of the christian community in america loathe them mm-hmm. and consider them blasphemous the if i'm not mistaken the pope denounced them because they were in some sort of catholic paper as being the worst of the worst book you could ever allow your children to read and yet As a Christian, in fact a Catholic, reading these books as a 12-year-old probably shaped my opinions on religion more than any other aspect of my
1: life. So in what ways?
0: Well, despite the fact that the books are very critical of, as we've said, organised religion, the earthly dimension, the idea that humans are always prone to corruption and anything, the books are incredibly spiritual, incredibly Mm -hmm. spiritual. Pullman may take away the idea of the Christian God, but he replaces it with the notion that as a human you are connected to everything in the universe. There is a higher power. There's something incredibly powerful about these novels, and they really, really shaped how I see religion and how I see God. And I definitely believe in God, so I I, th- I think Philip Pullman achieved what he set out to mm-hmm. here, which is that he encouraged people to question a conception of God and you know analyze it for themselves. I don't think at all that the books are dangerous mm-hmm. in the way that they are often described.
1: I agree with you that it's a very 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 powerful series, and it's uh, it's possibly one of the best children's series ever written. Oh, I can see Lauren like (laughs) frowning, being like, obviously it is. What are you on about? Yeah, obviously it is. But it's actually quite a fashionable statement to perceive of the world as being animated by some kind of spiritual dimension, but which is disconnected from clerical order. I'm thinking here outside the field of children's literature, tackling all the big questions in a way that is extremely spiritual but getting rid of the notion of god and i think that's something that philip pullman tapped into very powerfully
0: yes but the interesting thing about philip pullman is that he describes himself as a religious atheist he was heavily influenced by his was it grandfather who was a priest so he always cites the anglican book of common prayer as one of his biggest influences and something that I think is very interesting in children's publishing today I do think that we have directly retained the legacy of the original Christian influence Mm -hmm. in that most books very 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 overtly and commit to a Christian sense of morality yeah, they may they don't talk about characters going to church or praying, or so the religious aspect is removed, but the ideology and the morality behind them is thoroughly, thoroughly Christian.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's start with Harry Potter. Exactly, how many religious, even so, religious symbols is one thing, but even the way the character the ways the characters live their life and perceive their love life for example or even the ways families are organized
0: what the values that are promoted the values in the that are promoted are yeah
1: they're all inherited from christianity it is never questioned for one second in the book that people are going to get married
0: well it's not mentioned at all or never questioned sorry at all is it that it's the right thing to do for harry to top himself in order to save everyone else yeah that's never questioned because as the reader you don't know that he's going to come back to life well, you might suspect it, but he doesn't think he's going to come back to life. He thinks he has to die.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's that very, very frequently happens in all kinds of children's books that even when they might not mention religion at all, they are still inheritors of this original Christian origin of Western children's literature. Yeah. Like, if we list values that are always found in children's literature, what will we find? We talk a lot in children's literature criticism about hope in children's literature. Perhaps one of the things that distinguish children's literature from, adult's liter- from adult literature is the dimension to which there is some form of hope. And very often you will find that this hope is strange, like spiritual or numinous or, or supernatural to a degree. Because to hope in the face of so much adversity is possibly almost a, you know, quasi-religious feeling. Death, we've talked a lot about about death before, but you know, death very often has a religious dimension in the way it's presented through the rituals, in the way people are thought of, you know, as existing after death.
0: And there seem to be a lot of books where the characters are resurrected. <laughs> a lot of books!
1: <laughs> yeah, that, here again, like, that's a powerful motif. Um, so providence is also an important aspect of children's literature.
0: Yes, Art Choke Hearts is such a lovely book, and although it doesn't seem to have much to do with religion, the protagonist frequently calls on not sure who, not sure what, to help her and her family. Mm. And I think publishing, or children's literature these days, has achieved that through splitting religion into different components in a way that did not happen mm. at the beginning. But you, draws attention to more specific ways on how people choose to live their lives mm. and perhaps encourages tolerance in a way that the
1: earlier ones don't do you think that has to do as well with modern or even postmodern splitting of the of the of the individual self of, of one's perception of oneself which has become more and more and more scattered in, in critical discourse at least you know the self used to be sort of a unified concept that we would discuss. But now it's become extremely difficult to, you know, to discuss the self as one. In a way, this abandonment of religion has an impact on the individual in, in the children's text and the children's narrative.
0: Yes, definitely, because, example out of a book, but these days it's perfectly normal for a devout Christian to be very into yoga and also believe in, you know, holistic therapies and things like that. Whereas in the past, these three... Or at least two of them would have been very contradictory. And
1: contradictory. Okay. Well, I think to conclude, we could say that you know religion is still everywhere. We might say it's not; it's, it's unfashionable. We might say, oh, it doesn't happen anymore. Children's books are completely secular, but that's not true. It is still everywhere, and it is still a very heated debate because we are talking about a medium that is focusing on children, that is to say, on. Individuals who are forming their own identity, their own beliefs, their own perceptions of, of the world, their own perceptions of social political order, and religion is something that straddles all of these.
0: Well, thank you so much for listening today. Thank you. Please subscribe to us on iTunes.
1: We hope that you will join us next time for something a bit more lighthearted. It will be very lighthearted because we will discuss humour in children's literature. So don't
0: worry, no more death and no more God. <laughs>
1: But in the meantime, go to our website, kidunotpodcast.com.
0: Or email us if you have any points or questions or suggestions. Are there any books you want us to review or talk about? Um, Email us at kidunotpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.